How can we leverage the most amount of positive impact in the world? And how can tech enable that? How can it serve as that channel for good? I'm Alex Bloomberg, host of the podcast Startup, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. My name is Esprit Devora, born and raised LA, and I created We Are LA Tech in 2012 to unify the community. Podcast launched in 2014, continuing to help people find the best talent, to connect with each other, to form awesome relationships. So proud of this show. Enjoy. Today's We Are LA Tech episode shout out goes to Chris Miles. Chris Miles, thank you for being such a longtime member of the We Are LA Tech community and just championing everything that we do. Really appreciate you. Be sure to say hello to Chris on Twitter at Miles Next Door. That's M I L E S N E X T D O O R. Miles Next Door. Let Chris know you found him via We Are LA Tech. One of the hardest things as you know, a driven person and and someone working in tech is to balance making time for ourselves and for our friends and being driven and getting all the things done. It's such a difficult balance. Man, I got to see one of my best friends this week and it was the best. And also I'm like trying to power through all the tasks that I didn't get done while seeing him. And it just, I wouldn't take anything away. I would seem a million times over, but it's just like so crazy how working in tech and being a founder, it just doesn't end. There's no stopping point. It just keeps going and going and going. And so it's really up to us to have those boundaries and to prioritize like, no, uh, it's fine that the task doesn't get done yet or later or whatever it may be. And then also to prioritize sleep on top of that, because it's really important. We're better leaders the better sleep we have. So if we sacrifice sleep, we're actually not as effective at being productive and doing our job. So just such a crazy world we live in, but so exciting too, right? Because we get to be creative and we get to invent utilizing code and vision and I don't know, it's just such a crazy world. Oh, it's a, it's like Past 11, I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to keep working 11 p.m., if I'm going to keep working into the night, or I'm going to make sure to prioritize sleep. And it's always a struggle. Anyway, enjoy the next episode. We are LA Tech Podcast, spotlighting LA Tech companies and talent. So excited for our next guest, Asher. Hello. Hi. Hi. Asher, where in LA are you based? I am going to be right between, I mean, I'm still getting acquainted with all the neighborhoods because I'm a new addition to California, but I'm in Santa Monica, closer to the beach. Oh, nice. Nice. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I am a tech entrepreneur um, of late, but I think it's one of many labels and hats I wear, which is probably true of most women. I'm also a visual artist, a National Geographic explorer, a public speaker, and I am pretty passionate about stand-up comedy in my downtime. <laughs> I, I've done some stand-up <laughs> comedy before just to like push myself. That is extremely intimidating. <laughs> it's definitely... 
uh, a little unnerving at the outset, but once you get into the into the uh, into the sort of practice of it and know what works with your audience and how to repartee with them, uh, and you kind of fall into your own cadence of humor as well. You realize you have your unique voice in the midst of all the other comics that are going up, and you start developing that particular focal point through which you speak, and uh, that becomes sort of what you're known for, and everyone wants more of it. So now I actually walk around town and people recognize me for my humor, which is pretty funny because I was just doing it as a hobby and a, a, an opportunity to vent when I've had a rough day. Uh, but I could do so on a mic to a drunk audience. You know, that's pretty easy. OK, so you shared that you just came to L.A. Why L.A.? Where did you come from? What brought you here? Why was this the city to build in? I decided L.A. was going to be the city I build in. Partly intuitively, I just felt called to L.A. And I would say that has to do with who I've become. When I was growing up, I had a lot of exposure to cities. I got to live, I'm pretty global in my footprint. Um, I have family that's both in England and Europe and as well as in India. And I've lived in all these countries before, um, in London and in India and in Zurich. And then I was in the US um, since I was about 16. I was in New York and New York was home for 18 years. And I really loved it there, except, you know, you get saturated on the amount of stimulation and New York is pretty consumptive. Um, it can be very much about experiential in, uh, inputs that are entirely about a purchase economy. You buy into experiences, you go to the next play, the next restaurant that's opened or the next it thing that is happening down the street that you have to cough up for. There are some free experiences that are incredible in New York too, like Shakespeare in the Park and all these other amazing, you know, stimulating experiences. And I'm not trying to diss on a city that I absolutely love, but I would say that I reached a point where I could no longer take the amount of stimulation, the amount of having to go out of your house for everything all the time. And I never got to be. It took me like 30 years on this planet to realize I hadn't spent enough time with myself. And so right before COVID hit, I started getting a couple of gigs out in Montana, um, which is a weird transition story. But that I is tra up, a weird transition. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to Montana. <laughs> it is so beautiful out here. Uh, so I'm currently here. I'm back in L.A. tomorrow, um, but I'm in Montana right now, just wrapping up the loose ends of my existence footprint out here. But I would say that, you know, I wound up transiting through Montana to LA because Montana was like the extreme whiplash polarized outside of being in New York City, you know, on the in of everything to the out of everything. And so I literally, I lived in a patch of land that was 20 minutes away from what we called a city, which was five streets long. Um, and it was just completely different. You know, I have no street lights here. There's no pollution. There's no sounds of vehicles moving by my house. There's no one screaming outside my window. Um, there's no double park FedEx truck that's resulting in this cacophony of horns, uh, which, which is literally the sound that drove me out of New York. That morning when I began packing to leave New York was because of the, the horns. Um, and I lived at that point right by the United Nations. It was just incredibly loud. Um, and I think, you know, Montana gave me the, the quiet, the silence and the nature that I needed to find sort of restoration. And of course, as a New Yorker, you can't be left alone for too long. So I wound up creating a tech company in Montana before I knew it. Um, and it was based entirely around corporate social responsibility and impact initiatives, ESG, because that's been my career trajectory for the last 12 years is to work with different brands, nonprofits and government agencies around the world to look at how um, products, services and policies could get deployed in different countries and adopted from the bottom up so that you empower more stakeholders to be part of the narrative and a solution set is 
isn't sprung on them, rather assimilated through dialogue. So there's less resistance to the adoption rate. There is more of a conversation. It's sort of what we always espouse in the tech sector, you know, talk to your users, like make sure it reaches them before you start building because they may, it's not, it may not be what they actually want. And that's literally what I was doing with policies and with decision making that would affect countless lives or communities on the ground, you know, in regards to an issue, whether it was about um, a farm coming up from corporate holding that would encroach upon wilderness areas or wildlife corridors, which means that there would be greater human wildlife conflict because those animals would reroute through human settlements, things like that. I started a company in Montana, wound up building it out. We're going to launch our MVP in about two weeks now. And it's taken a lot to get to even this point because we initially started, I'm a first time founder. I've done a lot of SaaS apps for other brands and nonprofits, um, which I built out for them under their capacities. So you don't know what it's like to fundraise while also trying to build your app, while also getting into a legal issue with an IPO company, while also, you know, and literally every one of these files is happening at the same time. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh God, yeah. It's been like just a series of sleepless nights. I haven't had a holiday in 16 months. Um, and literally we work weekends, right? Like I work all the time. I don't know when I take a break, but it's also not work because what a privilege to be able to do something that was just um, a, a, a need-based idea that coalesced, but then there are enough people who galvanized behind it to become something more than just yourself. And so for it to even get to this point where it enlists a team, it enlists countless other minds and souls and hearts that care for the same end outcome to be realized is extraordinary. Right now, you know, when people are like, oh, you know, if it's that exhausting, maybe you should just quit. And I was like, I can't, not anymore. <laughs> that window has passed completely because now it's not just about me. It's about all the people that I'm working with as well who believe in it just as much as I do. And so on the days that I feel down and feel like, oh God, I'm just completely exhausted and I need like a timeout. I'm going to burn out at this juncture. I find my, so much inspiration from my team members who call in completely excited because they've had a breakthrough. They've had an insight on what we should and shouldn't be doing for the solution set and they want to build forward. But all of this veered toward LA because people were like, there's not enough talent in Montana, A, um, that would cater to exactly what we're doing. Um, there's also not the right client footprint for particularly our interface and what we need to be onboarding, which is more brands that are sustainability oriented, have very strong um, ESG commitments or CSR commitments that they want to cultivate a culture of transparency around. Um, most of my network, my incredibly robust network happens to be New York City. But when I come to LA, it feels like the perfect marriage of everything. And I would have never been open to LA like five years ago. I don't know what it is, you know? It's like, because when you're in New York, everybody just entrenches the thought of like, LA is just superficial. Don't you would never survive that. And people still tell me that. And I'm just like, that's not true. It depends on who you know and what kind of experience you've had and how far you've shown up in that space. So I think it's very easy to make general sweeping statements about any place. Everything has a stereotype, but it's not necessarily true. I think if you go there and explore for your own self, depending on what your alignment is and how you show up for the world, the right tribe can come together around you, you know? So I think how you vibe is the kind of tribe you bring about. LA is hectic sometimes too. It's more hectic than Montana and, and why LA and not Austin that is very like uh, sometimes small town feel even though everybody moved there. What was it about Los Angeles? 
I mean, I literally thought about Austin, Chicago. It was like, you know, I was literally exploring Miami. Miami, not my scene, A, because people drive like they're completely like unhinged. I have no words that I could not survive a day there. And I think also science and semiotics and semantics at the, the Miami airport is just like deeply disturbing. I can't go there again. Like it's so impossible to navigate around there. And the humidity, not a big fan of it. I love the temperate climate of LA, but also, you know, I don't know if, if there's a thing around intuition, but I genuinely follow my gut instinct and I feel called to LA. I can't rationally explain why I feel so strongly called to LA, but it's as clear as it was the day that I wanted to leave New York for Montana for the break that I left and was in Montana. And that was deeply restorative. And, a, and I wound up starting a company here, which I don't think I would have had the space to even think about what it is I really wanted to do till I got to Montana. So I always believe in just like following my gut instinct because it takes me to where I need to be to do what I'm meant to do. Um, and I always feel like I find the right people. But also LA, depending again on how you do LA, yes, it can definitely be, you know, a highly dynamic hub you know because it is a main city and it's got a lot going on um even if i'm there for 10 minutes like tomorrow i'm there in the morning and i already have two meetings and like a dinner and an event to attend like as soon as i get back in um, and that is la but at the same time if i wanted to take my dog for a hike i could do that i just like having a balance where if i needed to unplug there is the opportunity to go into nature and connect with something real and living and intimate in a quiet moment with it. It could be as simple as just seeing a firefly and being with it without anybody else intruding in that intimate moment. And I, for me personally, nature is deeply restorative. I love connecting with living things and I love plants, can't get enough of trees, especially being in front of a screen as much as I am, building an interface that is meant to be in favor of planet and people. I don't get enough time with either. And so you don't realize you spent just hours and hours of your life doing things that are going to help launch something but it's still nascent. It still hasn't yet hatched, you know. And so until then, it you, you do feel like you're alone in this, doing something like a crazy person hours on end and like no one has seen it yet. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. How do you feel that Los Angeles will help catapult your growth with your uh, with your company? Do we have the resources here in terms of accelerators or network or or energy? So first of all, uh, a couple of my early partners live in L.A., so that's an easy connection right there for what we're building out. Um, and I mean early partners as in, you know, organizations that are working on the kind of outcomes we're looking to align the brands with. And then in terms of um, nonprofits, I'm on an advisory board of a nonprofit soon. Um, I just was at the gala like last weekend in L.A. It's called Plastic Pollution Coalition. They work on Hollywood. Uh, they work on multiple initiatives, but the most recent project we launched through them was to revisit how much plastics, especially single-use plastic, was being placed in Hollywood scripts. And that would explain why we think it's so um, accepted and normative to consume pla anything in plastics, you know, that it's a disposable culture. And this, this whole idea of convenience is a deeply um, entrenched uh, narrative that we can't escape. Then come the venture capitalists that I know um, that are aligning with our effort, who have been the most candid advice I've got and the most helpful input in how to move forward on my fundraising right now came from a VC that I trust and know that was introduced to me by another friend in LA who's working with us. 
in LA, right? So like that's the level to which I really feel like things are unfolding effortlessly there. Um, and the right investors are there for me because they have the same value system as what we're building this application out for. And I think in terms of the brands, that has been a no-brainer. Like LA, like not just LA, but California in general, highly conscientious, a highly woke group. You know, they like it's not it's not um, a hard sell to talk to people about the obvious things that need to get addressed yesterday. But to do that in in a tertiary market space or a tier two market space is much harder. And I should know because I've been in Montana trying to like reach people who speak a very different language. It's easy to assume that everybody around you is like you. Uh, hasn't been the case when I left New York and came to Montana. I met a lot of incredible people, and yes, they think very differently from me. I have every bit of respect for them, irrespective, because I think, you know, it's it's a healthy thing to have difference of opinions. But, you know, there are people here that I know that are in my friend circle who don't recycle at all because they don't think it matters. I think people who are in very insular bubbles, like being in Bozeman, Montana, has been a huge like snow globe, um, beautiful, picturesque one. But people don't really care what happens outside of it. You know, being in LA is like a complete 360 contrast to having done this, you know, because the last two years of being in this bubble has really shown me sort of where we fall short when we lose sight of the larger picture. And I think when I'm in LA and California, it's like almost you're intrinsically connected to a much larger context because everyone is having those critical conversations every day. I can wake up for breakfast and have a meaningful dialogue about something that is happening halfway across the world because those things matter. And we can talk about that in a real way. A lot gets swept under the carpet in other markets. And I think we take that for granted when we are in a main city like New York or LA. And I love vegetation. And you guys have that dancing cactus everywhere, which totally seduces me. I love the ocean. I'm a huge ocean girl. Love surf, like paddle surfing, diving, being in the water. So I think like there's just a lot that LA has to offer. You know, even the restaurants, the food, just everything. There's so much there that I love. I can't even put my finger on it yet. Do you have a restaurant that happens to be your favorite? What is it? The Inn on was Seventh Ray or Seventh Ray? Oh, Inn? The, I know what you're Inn talking about. The Seventh Ray. Ray. Yeah, I know yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, the Seventh Ray. I think it's called. It's like up up a mountain. Like I forget where it is, but it's beautiful. I loved it. It's just such a great scene. The food was delicious. The radishio salad was to die for. Yeah, definitely love that experience. And when you're landing in L.A. for tech, how do you quickly immerse yourself into the community? What events have you really found valuable? The tech events I've attended have been near Silicon Valley, unfortunately, so not I can't speak to the L.A. tech events. But I would say in terms of how I plug myself into the tech community there is to go to um, gatherings like when different apps are launching, you know, they usually put out invitation or gatherings at um, what is the bar that is by the Fairmont? I forget the name off the cuff. Oh, you're talking about the bungalow in Santa Monica. Yes, yes, bungalow. <laughs> yep, yeah. in Santa Monica. So that's literally where I've met most people. Uh, like every time you end up there for any of the app launches or gatherings or like when people who are VCs who come into town or scouts that come into town and they're like, oh, we're getting all the founders together through the Twitter community and they just put out a tweet and you meet them up at a coffee shop. I actually prefer those kind of organic meetups to through the Twitterverse to actually connecting at like a very structured tech event. I actually found more benefit in LA hanging out in these casual connections as opposed to doing it at, you know, Tycon and things like that in in SV. A hundred percent. 
Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's more real. People are willing to talk about the things that matter and then like the struggles we're facing, which are usually shared and also how people have navigated through them. Um, and people are willing to help, which is amazing. People open doors for one another. I find it a very symbiotic, mutualistic culture. Yeah. And when did you first become interested in technology? I think I always have been. I don't think I could have done any of the things I've done to date without tech. Um, I used to do everything from sound immersive landscapes for installations I created for National Geographic, where you could stand in a space and hear a whisper of voices all around you. And it was like a bait bowl of voices speaking to issues around the world. And I think the reason I turned to tech once again is to either coalesce what seems to be disparate or distanced and bring that to a, a sense of consensus and localization uh, and the other thing that tech does is it can bring it to wherever a person is, you know, so you can create a singular output, whether it's an animated digital media board, like a billboard, um, and you, you can broadcast that in New York just as well as you can broadcast it in China. And that's the kind of campaigns I used to run in the past, you know, so anything I've always created um, to help communicate the prevalent concerns of our time and to encourage brands, nonprofits, zoos, uh, any kind of institutional setup that could step in and be a steward in that capacity or a stakeholder, the way I persuaded them was through tech and storytelling. And tech is a, a, a channel through which you can really leverage the art of storytelling. Oh, 100%. Technology to me has always been an artistic tool in order to connect. I mean, I the reason why I'm pausing is because it's, I was going to say in order to connect humanity together, but then it's done the complete opposite. So I feel very conflicted. <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually know some really interesting projects that I learned off through being in tech, but also being a person who's on the front lines in documenting stories where, about illicit contraband or working with women's groups across Western Africa to empower them in a microeconomic capacity. The best way to do most of these things, including combating poaching, is through drone technology, through surveillance, through trap camps. Literally without tech, we couldn't do anything that we're capable of doing in the world to intercept, to uh, dissuade, to persuade to defund, like all these things that require disincentives as well as incentives occur through the conduit of tech. And it can be disseminated so quickly, so effortlessly that like one day there was no light and the next day because of solar cells, a kid in rural Africa in his household disconnected from the electrical grid can be reading. And there's education, you know, for the first time in his life, he has access to education. So I think it's tremendous what tech can do when you truly think about its decentralized democratic capacity to improve lives. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, you know, looking at how can we leverage the most amount of positive impact in the world and how can tech enable that? How can it serve as that channel for good? A hundred percent. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten that has really helped propel you? Uh, don't quit. It, there's going to be moments where you have self-doubt but the only way something fails is when you quit. Like that it can flail, it can even not work out. But if you don't quit, it means that you are willing to take what hasn't worked out and apply that towards the next chapter as well. You know, so it's, it's never like anything has been a failure because everything has been a learning experience, has been something that you can take forward and apply towards what you are actually meant to do. So I never take it as a negative and tech as a space, especially when you're a startup founder and a first time founder and a woman, 
it is exponentially harder to fundraise, to do anything. Um, I can't tell you the n amount of uh, walls I've hit as a female founder that a man just would not even encounter. And also a lot of patronizing moments where you have older GPs from venture capital firms that, you know, hit on you or say the inappropriate passing remark and then, you know, half-assedly apologize for it. It can be a lot of small microaggressions, you know, and again, it, it really is dependent on who you're sitting in front of. It's not the case with everybody. But I would say as a woman, you hit a lot more walls. It's a lot harder to raise money. People ask you to justify instead of upsell your product. Uh, you are asked for your domain expertise every step of the way. Men talk to one another better than they're willing to listen to you or receive you uh, and talk to you, even if they're within your own team. Sometimes I've had difficulties being heard within my own team because a lot of them are men. And it's interesting to navigate all of that with resilience and, and sort of the passion for why you're showing up. If you know the why, that helps you survive a lot of the, the obstacles you hit. And ultimately, I think if you don't, you know, give up on it, on it, on, it on, on what it is that you're trying to show up for and why you started all of this, why you're enduring this enormous amount of responsibility, pressure, uh, sleepless nights, the whole nine yards. If you know the why then and you stand by it, it will find some way of coming alive. This app is, is sort of the starting point. But like, you know, even then so many people will tell you so many things like, oh, this may not work out for whatever reasons that they think it may not work out. You know, market is not big enough. <clears throat> we don't think we can fund this because of the fact that like you've not hit market yet. We thought you would be at market sooner. Like there could be a thousand reasons why something may not happen. OK, but if you listen to every one of the no's, you're never going to move towards the yes that you felt inside of you when you started this. And things are happening when they're meant to happen. I genuinely believe that like, it all, it's all coming together. It, it may take a little longer for you than it did for the other person, but so be it. Like, Just stay with it. And let's circle back to your app as we begin to wrap up. How long has your app existed? It's just since uh, the last few months, right? If I'm hearing you correctly. And then what's your vision and your team? And tell us all the like groundwork so we know how we could support you. Oh, sure. So right now, uh, we're still a pre-seed company. Uh, <clears throat> we've raised about $700,000. We have most of our product in, in, in sort of the uh, staging environment. We're currently testing it to roll it out. We've shifted a few gears in learning more about what it is we're going after. And I don't know how candid I should be, but maybe I should just be candid and tell people. So one thing I'd say that I struggle with is in terms of investing itself. You know, who are you taking money from? And what are they expecting? And is that in alignment with what you're trying to create? And I've spoken to so many founders, including one of the co-founders of Etsy. And every single person I've spoken to who had the right values when they began and created something extraordinary because they genuinely believed in their solution set felt they'd lost a lot of that integrity and essence of, of uh, passion when they took the wrong money in and the money began to call the shots. And so I have been very, very uh, mindful of saying no to people and truly looking at who do I need money from? How much money do I need to do what I'm doing and to do it well and do it with the right integrity? So that's one thing I'd say. The other side of it is in terms of building out the team, be very slow to hire. Like I, the biggest lesson I learned and I learned it the hard way is payroll. Like don't bring people on too soon. You know, and they say, they tell you things like be quick to hire, slow, like no slow to hire, quick to fire. 
but it's hard to do that when you're a small team and you bring someone and you're paying them and like to get them out. It's it it all becomes messier because everybody's in their face, each other's face a lot more than you would be in a traditional company setup. Plus, you don't have HR, so literally it's you as the founder having to deal with all of the human conflict that can arise even with a small team. So what I've done is now most of my team is remote. Um, we have about 15 different people working in the technical build out from solutions architect to having a person who's working purely on the blockchain component. Um, someone who's like we have uh, front end and back end developers. We have a full stack developer. We have the UI UX designer. So we have all these different minds. And fortunately, they all are based in different countries and different places. And we have come together as a team because I've known them over the years and through a friend of mine who's a five-time founder and he's he's super passionate about what we're building so he's kind of my fractional CTO and like advisor so it's been great one big thing I would say don't bring on people who are in it for the wrong reasons and you will get to suss that out over time but like especially early on it totally demoralizes a team that needs to show up around the clock they don't feel like doing so because the person who they are working with, one of the core team members is genuinely just showing it up for either equity or money or to have his, you know, sort of claim to fame in a very short burst of time. I would just say be, be prepared to truly surrender a lot of things because there's only so much you can control and there's so much that you can't. So if you can't let go, you're going to be very negatively oriented towards your own effort and towards your own team. Because if you can't let go, you're not creating room for being present. You're constantly hanging on to the last issue that transpired to which you have a reaction and you're still stuck there. So for me, as I'm processing, I'm letting go. I'm like, okay, that's already happened. Now what's the next thing we can be doing? You know, so you have to kind of solve through, be adaptive, elastic, and just let go of this strong notion of this is my calendar and I'm sticking to it. I thought we had these things put into an agile model and this is exactly how it's going to work out. People are people, life happens, <laughs> just be present, be humble, and, you know, surrender that which you cannot control. And where can people connect with you? Oh, I'm on Twitter at Earth Eris, uh, which is a funny story. So I, I, you know, when I grew up, I was watching Simple Life, and I just thought it was funny they were inheriting massive fortunes. And I was like, I'm going to inherit the whole planet. So I'm the Earth Eris. Oh, that's, (laughs) I love how you, how, how you rework that. That's awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out with the We Are LA Tech podcast. To connect and collaborate with more amazing people in the LA Tech community, go to wearelatech.com slash community. That's wearelatech.com slash community. Say hello on social at We Are LA Tech on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, all the things in the next episode. Bye. Bye. I'm Asha Jay, CEO and founder of Incorporate, which is I-N-C-O-P-E-R-A-T-E dot com. And we're based in Santa Monica. And you're listening to We Are LA Tech. The We Are LA Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by... Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The We Are LA Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production.